This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's sermon text comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. It'll be on the screen. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, It's good to be with you all. Uh, I'd like to start off in a way that I don't always start off with, and I know we just prayed together, the corporate prayer of illumination, but uh, I'd like for us to pray again together. Uh, this has been a, a very, I wouldn't say a terrible week for me, but a week that uh, was very full in different ways, and so I am a little scattered uh, this morning, and uh, maybe a little confused and a little discouraged. So uh, if, if we could pray together um, uh, that would be good, all right? So please pray with me. Father, we come to you uh, just having prayed that it's your word that's eternal. Um, It is your word which gives life. Everything else, uh, including uh, how well I think this goes, uh, will perish, including the podcast. And um, I ask that you would change us, that you would grow in us a desire to deeply love one another and to long for all things that are in accordance with our new birth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you. Uh, So this morning we are continuing on in our series in 1 Peter called A Sojourner's Hope. Now, uh, when I I mapped out the series uh, after Preparing to preach this, I'm not sure if I would have mapped it out in the exact same way, Uh, but alas, here we are. Uh, First Peter is a letter written to a a group of Christians that are in exile. And so in this letter so far, uh, Peter has spoken into their, uh, their social context of being marginalized, and they're being marginalized for no other reason than because they've come to faith in Jesus And they're reeling a little bit. They're trying to figure out what this new life in Jesus looks like now that they don't fit in society like they used to. Uh, And they also now, apparently, according to Peter, uh, have a different relationship with God, which now has certain implications for how they are to live their life. And so all of these Christians Peter's writing to are trying to navigate the tension of being in the world, but no longer belonging to the world like they used to. Being in the world as God's children, not pulling away from the world, but actually engaging the world on mission. 
So far in the letter, he has expounded uh, briefly in introductory form, and he will talk about it more as the letter goes on. He's expounded on what it means that they are exiles, that they are in society for society, and that's changing the way they interact with society, but it's also changing the way they interact with God, the way they understand themselves. And in this section, which we started last week and will conclude this week, uh, Peter is telling them that now that they've been born again, they are to be holy. They are to live lives that are set apart for God's use in all areas of their life. And in this section, he gives them four specific commands. We dealt with two last week, and we're gonna deal with the, the other two this week. Last week, we saw that they were, as new Christians, to set their hope fully on God's grace. That is to say, they were to stake every claim in their life on the grace of God. Then the second thing he told them last week we saw was that they were to be holy after the character of their holy father. Now that they're in this new family, they are to resemble their father. And their father is holy, and they are also to be holy. Now this week, he continues with these ethical instructions by saying two things. One, they are to love one another earnestly. And two, they are to crave pure spiritual milk. Now, we're just gonna get really fancy and those are gonna be our points, okay? So the first point is gonna be to love each other earnestly. But before we get there, I was reflecting on the fact that to some of us, it might seem strange that all of a sudden, we're talking about relationships with one another in the church. It's kind of like, well, where did this come from? What's, what's the logic? What's the flow? You see, what Peter's gonna tell us and this is my summary of the whole passage, and then, then we'll jump in. What Peter's gonna tell us is that if we are born of God, we now have God's DNA. God has planted his seed, or the word, in our hearts. And like any other seed, when it takes root, it begins to do exactly what it's designed to do. And it begins to, to, to spread and multiply its DNA throughout the entire organism. Or if you want to think of it as a plant, once it takes root in the soil, it continues to replicate its DNA to grow into the plant or the tree that it was designed to be. And in that very multiplication of what it was designed to be, it becomes like the resemblance of the thing that created it. And you see, we understand that God is love. And that one of the main things that God is doing in creating a people for himself is to create a holy people that displays what it means to be human beings in the world. To display what it means to live a life that images God. And we as image bearers are created as relational beings. And our calling to the Lord is not a call in isolation, but it's actually a call to a community. It's actually a call to a people. Now, I was just heard of a story this week of, and we've all heard of many of these stories, of a person who loved the church, who came to faith as a young person and had horrific experiences in the church, in the church community and pulled away and pulled back and 
And I imagine one day led to another and one week led to another missed week and one month to another month and years to years. And all of a sudden they find themselves completely removed from God's people, the church. And the hope they once had of flourishing is now dwindling. Because you see, the call to God is not a call to isolation. The call to God is a call to a people. And I know that every single one of us longs for more meaningful relationships in the church. It doesn't matter what your experience is. It can be a horrible experience or it can be an amazing experience. But every single one of us, because God's DNA is in us, we long for increased relational wholeness. We long for increased relational capacity. We long to belong and to be with one another. I think that's how Peter got here. He, he said, you now have been redefined in your relationship with society. You've been redefined with your relationship with God. And now let's talk about with one another. So he says, love each other earnestly. The call to relationship, as I've said three or four times now, is not a call in isolation. God calls us in covenant relationship. If you look here, he says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that is, you've believed the gospel. And this harkens back to the beginning of the book where he actually says that uh, they have been born again and they have been separated by the sprinkling of the blood. So when we trust in Christ, we've been purified to be holy. And so in a sense, to live holy is to become what you are. And then he says this word for, for a sincere brotherly love. This word for can carry the force of either purpose or result. So as I was reflecting on this, I think that the preposition uh, given Peter's exhortation to love one another, this prepositional phrase probably states the purpose of the new covenant in Christ's blood, and that is to restore a chosen humanity to righteous living. That is the purpose of us being saved, to restore a people on the earth that lives righteously before God. So that means that obedience to the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to a doctrine, but it's actually about transformation. And that transformation impacts the way we live with one another and we treat one another. He actually then gives us a list of vices, right? Verse two, one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now the Bible is full of these lists of vices and virtues. Uh, and sometimes I, like you, might just sort of skim past them, right? I mean, because we, we read this list and we think that sounds like a really horrible person. Of course, that's not me. Like I don't do those things. I'm not filled with envy and malice but let's slow down for a minute and let's take a look, all right? Before we pass over these as just pure evil stuff that those people do, let's take a quick look at each one. First, let's look at malice. Here's my question. Uh, do you ever have even ill will towards someone? Right, so malice can mean evil intent, but it also just as easily means ill will. So maybe your sense of their injustice or their annoyance, right? They're annoying you 
over time, it turns to a desire, maybe not for them to die. I mean, that's, that's too far. But you kind of have an ill will towards them. Right? It, does, it doesn't hurt your feelings uh, all of a sudden if they've had a bad day. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't hurt your feelings all of a sudden if they're having a, a bad life. You have, but you have an ill will towards them. It's not, it's not for love. It's not for flourishing. It's not for harmony. And maybe it's just for indifference. All right, what about deceit? Right, deceit is taking advantage of someone else through craftiness or through underhanded methods. What about in conversation, right? What, what about in a, in a conversation that seems pretty innocent? All of a sudden you find yourself, uh, you came out of the, came out of the box pretty, pretty hot on whatever your point of view was. And then all of a sudden you realize that maybe some of your facts weren't exactly straight. Or maybe you realize that the other person knows a little more than you thought they did about what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden you, you move the goalposts a little bit, right? You move the goalposts, which is sort of like an on the street fallacy. You sort of reframe the conversations to sort of deceive them. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, you don't understand me? It must be your problem because I'm being perfectly clear. Right, that's a form of deceit. Anytime that we are crafty or deceitful and maybe it's in uh, winning an argument or getting what you want. What about hypocrisy, right? To, to be a hypocrite is to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purpose or motivation. Is that something that you ever do? Do you ever walk into a room, even a community group or even into this church and think to yourself, how do I need to act in order to get the reception that I want to get. That's hypocrisy. What about envy? Do you ever feel a sense of discontentedness arise out of seeing someone else's possessions, right? You were perfectly content. Everything was going fine. And then you see something that maybe you haven't seen before and you feel this discontentedness arise in you. Maybe it's a pattern in your life. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it a one-off. But if you feel that discontentedness that arises out of seeing someone else's possessions, that's called envy. What about slander? To slander someone is to speak of someone else in such a way that you defame their character or even just detract from their character by what you say. This, This is one of the more difficult ones, I think, because we talk so much We just talk and we just talk and we talk and we talk. We talk like this. We talk in emails. We text message. We send images and we say a a thousand words in one image, right? One bitmoji, you might slander someone for two pages of written words. If you don't know what bitmoji is, you can talk to me later. There are lots of ways we can slander people. We can defame their character. Now, why did I slow down and, and talk about all of these? Well, first of all, he he goes through the trouble of listing them all out. And we understand that all of these vices destroy community, right? That's why he's naming them. All these vices absolutely destroy community because one of the things that community requires is vulnerability. It's coming in to a place and saying, this is who I am and I need to be known as who I am if I'm gonna truly belong. Now, you see, the values of the society that they, came, that they came from 
they would view that as weakness. Vulnerability is weakness, right? We talked about last week that social esteem, money, and education was how you proved your worth in this culture. And we also made a note that it's not too different now. Social esteem, education, and money. But in the community of God, in God's people, the values are different. The values change. And so therefore the virtues change and the vices change. And all of a sudden, we see slandering someone else is actually selfish. It's not for their flourishing and it's certainly not in connection to the character of God, that DNA that was implanted in us when we were born again. So go back up to 23. I did this backwards on purpose because I wanted us to see his logic. So put away all of those things, why? Verse 23. Since you have been born again, that's why. You have a new character. That's why. You're part of a new story. That's why. That's why you put all of those away. And in this new birth was not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So think about a seed, right? A seed is packed with proper nutrients and DNA to make that thing flourish, right? If the human being, I just saw this this week. I don't know if you guys saw this, but at the moment of conception, uh, they were able to, to view in a, in a Petri dish the moment of conception of a human being and a, and a flicker of light goes off. Isn't that amazing? I have no idea what it has to do with this except I said conception and it made me think of that. <laughs> right? Something happens, right? There's a change. In that moment, there were two separate things and then now there's a new thing and it's one thing. And it's been conceived and has everything in it that it needs to grow into exactly what it was designed to grow into. And he is saying that we have, have not had a perishable seed planted in us that will one day peter out and die. But we have had a seed planted in us that is imperishable, that will never die. And the life that is in that seed is eternal. It is eternal life. And then he goes and quotes Isaiah 40, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm with you. Imperishable seed, perishable seed. And then he goes into this. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What is the logic here? Well, it might help us to understand what's happening in Isaiah 40. Most of us have probably heard this before. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. And we understand that in general, what he's talking about is even the glory of the world, even even the most magnificent culture like the Greco-Roman culture, or in this case, the Babylonian culture, which we'll speak of in a minute, as glorious as it is, it too will pass away. We understand that much. But what's happening in Isaiah 40? At the beginning of Isaiah 40, which is where this passage comes from, Isaiah says, comfort, comfort to my people. You see, these people in Isaiah 40 are in a similar situation to these people in 1 Peter. These people in Isaiah 40 find themselves in exile. They find themselves sojourning. They find themselves being marginalized. They find themselves being taken out of everything they once had. 
and they feel hopeless, which is much like, as we've seen, this community in 1 Peter. And so Peter quotes Isaiah because in Isaiah 40, Isaiah tells them, look around, look at, look at all of these glorious things you see in the Babylonian culture. And Peter, in a sense, is saying, look around, look at all of these things that you're leaving. Yes, you're leaving their definition of social status. Yes, you're leaving their definition of identity and education. Yes, you're leaving their, that is to say, the culture's definition of meaning found in your performance. Yes, that's true. But let me tell you something. Just imagine with yourself, imagine that you made it. Imagine that you made whatever in your mind is most glorious. Picture that, just picture you've arrived, right? You, you have that magic number in your bank account that would just make you feel okay, right? You, ha- you have that magic title before your name. You have those magic letters behind your name. You have that relationship that told you if I just got here, I would make it. You have the, that number of children, perfect boys and girls that told you now I'm living the American dream. You have that marriage that you thought would make you feel better about yourself. Just imagine that. As glorious as those things are, but in and of themselves, that too will pass away. That's the point. He's rooting them in the story. He's rooting them in the story that they now belong to. And he's saying, despite the circumstances causing your suffering, you are participating in the eternal plan of God. That is your story now. And so just like the people in Isaiah and just like the people Peter is writing to, they face a choice of loyalty. Where will your loyalty go to? And I love, Peter's writing this, right? I love the conversation Jesus has with Peter in the Gospels where uh, Jesus says some really controversial things which wasn't uncommon and he looks at his disciples and he says, are you gonna leave too? And do you remember Peter's response? Where are we gonna go? Where are we gonna go? You have the words of life, Jesus. Where else are we gonna go? I think I hear that here. Peter is saying, You can go here, you can go here, yes. But as glorious as as it seems, it will perish. You have nowhere else to go. If you want life, you have life. And so the way that this has to do with loving one another is that when we fail to love one another, it's because we're trying to find life for ourselves at the expense of someone else. You see, why else would you engage in these vices? Why else would you deceive? Why else would you have ill will towards someone? Why else would you envy someone else? Why else would you slander someone else? It's because you need that in order to create for yourself this life, this kingdom that seems like it's valuable to you. Like it seems like it will give you meaning and identity. And Peter is saying, no, no, that's not how we interact anymore. That, that was how we, you interacted before you became a child of God, but that's not how we do things now. You're being remade, reshaped by the eternal and unfailing word of God. So the power of God is contrasted with the powerlessness of these idols. 
So that's one good thing that we could do. And if you, and if you have a pen, write this down. This is something that I want to do this week myself. I, I want to make note of all of the times when I feel down or all the times when I feel hopeless or all the times when I feel not enough. Like I'm not enough. Like this is, I'm just not doing it. I'm not cutting it. And I want to ask myself, where am I trying to find life right now? Is it in my performance? Is it in in how other people view me? Is it in how smart I am or how you name, you fill in the blank. What is it for you? And then I want to remind myself that 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 idol that I've crafted, that that I've chosen to bow down to, it too will fall away. But in Jesus, I have eternal hope, a hope that does not go away. And I know, I just know that that will help me be more patient with my kids. I just know that that will make me be more proactively loving to you all and to my spouse. All of a sudden, my mind will be freed up in ways where I can pray for you more, where I can pray for you more fervently because I won't be so tied up in trying to gain life in that moment in my performance. And so, yes, it makes perfect sense to me that if that if God's love is implanted in me and it's growing and it's multiplying, that I actually will begin to love you and love others better. So first, love each other earnestly, he says. And then lastly, crave spiritual nourishment. Let's jump down to verse two here in chapter two. <clears throat> like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Has anyone seen a newborn infant? I mean a newborn infant long for milk. You put a baby on the stomach or chest of the mother it just came out of and that infant will do everything it can to find milk. It will move, it will strain. It's designed to find milk. God made it that way. He made us that way to find that life-giving sustenance. And so that's the image that Peter is drawing. He's not saying you're an infant because you're immature. That, that's not the imagery he's drawing upon. He's drawing upon that desperation, that, that desire that's built in the earnestness that we see in an infant longing for pure milk. That is the image that he's drawing up for us. But what exactly is that? What exactly is pure spiritual milk? Well, most interpreters will point to the fact that it's the word of God, right? We've been talking about the word of God, the imperishable word of God, and I do think that it is the word of God, but I I think that it includes more than the word of God as well. I like how John Calvin says it. He says, now that Peter has taught that the faithful are regenerated by the word of God, he exhorts them to lead a life corresponding with their birth. You see, this this word spiritual is a different word than I would have expected. The word pneumatikos in Greek, spirit, that's not the word that's used. It's actually a Greek word that is logikos, 
or logic or reasoning or to be fitting. It makes sense, right? Live the life in conformity to what makes sense with who you are. And that's what Calvin is pointing to. He says, infancy is here set by Peter over against the old age of the flesh, which led to corruption. And by this word milk, he includes all the feelings of spiritual life. And so what I'm saying is that all of us who are reborn into the family of God need food that corresponds with the reality of their new life. Now, I've heard people say, after they become Christians, I've heard them say, I don't like Christians. Like, I would much rather hang out with non-Christians. That's great. As long as you said uh, something like, well, let me, let me reframe it, right? What if we said, I love Christians and I love hanging out with non-Christians? That would be a good answer. That would be a good biblical disposition, right? But what are we saying? What are we trying to say when we say things like, I don't like Christians, I don't like hanging out with Christians. Well, sometimes we say it because we think it makes us sound cool. Sometimes we say it because we think it makes us sound like we love mission. And sometimes I don't think we know why we say it. But we do experience it. We do feel that we don't belong. We do feel that that community in the church doesn't matter. But in fact, it matters greatly. One of, the thing, one of the values of New City is that community is a means of grace. That is to say, community is one of the ways that God uses to shape you and to nourish you and to conform you. So yes, this spiritual milk is the word of God. We could trace it back always to the word of God. But it's also Community. It's also a community where you feel like you belong because there's vulnerability, there's forgiveness, there's, there's, there's change. The gospel is changing people and it's drawing people closer to one another. And I love the fact that he, he uses Psalm 34, which, which talks about tasting that the Lord is good. Now, taste is different than seeing or touching Because when you taste something, you actually take it in, right? You ingest it. You experience it in a way that you don't experience it if you just look at it. So if I just look at food, if I just look at a pie, I just look at it, I can even touch it. That's a good experience. And for the right time, I guess it could be the right experience. But ultimately, we know if you bake a pie, you're supposed to eat the pie. You're supposed to take it in. You're supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to ingest it. It's been said that God is not merely a subject to be studied. Oh man, where is it? It was so good too. There it is. Yes. God is not a subject to be studied, but a banquet to be enjoyed. 
told you it was worth it. (laughs) God is not merely a subject to be studied, but a banquet to be enjoyed. And some of you, you've never experienced Christianity like that. You've never experienced the fact that Christianity is about tasting. It's about taking in. It's about experiencing God, not just studying him. Not just knowing things about him, but experiencing him. Psalm 34, where David is quoting from, is a psalm of thanksgiving for God's protection and care. And it's a proclamation that David trusted him. And the word taste is obviously a metaphor for personal experience. And the psalm speaks of how the psalmist David in this case tasted and experienced the Lord's goodness, particularly when he put his hope in him. You see, I don't know how else we can experience God unless he's our hope. I don't know how else we can experience God if we're hedging our bets. I don't know how else we can experience God unless we hope fully in him, which is what we heard last week. And in Psalm 34, which Peter clearly has in mind all throughout this letter, we find that the psalmist hoped in God and he experienced God's deliverance from shame. He experienced deliverance from affliction and he experienced deliverance from his needs. Do you have shame this morning? I do, lots of it, experiencing it now. Do you have needs this morning? Do you have something in your life that you need transformed in? Of course. And the way we experience God is when we fully hope in him. So to taste the Lord is to shed junk food or the vices, right? To experience him in his word, we've seen. To experience him in community. And now from Psalm 34 in its context, to experience him in hope. To taste him. To ingest him. To experience him. And he says here that that you may grow up into salvation. So we realize that's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing ingesting. It's an ongoing coming. It's an ongoing pursuing. It's an ongoing asking. It's an ongoing hoping in the Lord. And it's an ongoing experiencing. So I'll end with this question. How does this actually work? I mean, okay, hoping, got it. But what if I don't crave it? He says it, right? He, he says, crave spiritual nourishment. What if I crave the old stuff? What if I crave junk food? And not the good stuff, the pure stuff, the stuff that will nourish me, the nutritious stuff. What if I still crave some of the other stuff? What do I look to to fill me up when in fact it just leaves me more hungry? Every single one of us has those things. Every single one of us still has a taste in our taste buds for things we ought not to find tasty. But this is the good news of the gospel. And that is this. That Jesus on the cross tasted the wrath of God so that you and I, even in our failings, could taste the goodness of God. Jesus went to the cross to experience the wrath of God on my behalf so that 
I actually have the ability to hope in him so that I can experience the goodness of God. Because apart from Jesus experiencing the wrath of God for me, I had no hope of experiencing the goodness of God. And you see, once I grab onto that reality, once I realize over and over and reflect upon the fact that Jesus tasted the wrath so that I wouldn't have to, it begins to shape what I find tasty. I no longer find malice and envy and slander as tasty as I used to, but I find generosity and loving sacrifice and worship much more tasty than I used to. And so this morning as we walk out and, and long and have an appetite for meaning, for purpose, for belonging, know this, that the way we experience God and the way our taste buds change is to hope in him, not to hedge our bets, to pursue him, not to run from him. And it's all made possible because Jesus has quenched the wrath on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you knowing that we oftentimes um, are not as uh, strong as we think we are. And uh, we, in those times, find the fact that we have been feasting on things that are not nutritious. We've been trusting in things that are perishable instead of imperishable. We are so thankful that you, though, have implanted a secure seed in us. And that has conceived a new birth. And that new birth gives us a new nature. And that new nature, by your power, will be carried out into eternal life. And you will continue to shape us. You will continue to shape what we find as tasty. You will continue to guide and direct our passions and our love and our hope. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that you have us and that our salvation is not based on our strength of having you. In Jesus' name, amen.